Welcome. How are you doing today? You are at OTR, Achieving Mental Health for Real, formerly Over the Rainbow. I am your host, Bob Adelman. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Allison Boutran. She is here to tell her story. So here is the interview with Dr. Allison Boutran. How are you doing, Allison? I'm doing well. Thank you, Bob, for having me on your show. I'm excited to share my opinions and my story. Could you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Allison Boudram. I was born and raised in the Caribbean island of Trinidad and Tobago. And through my parents wanting us to be well-educated and have better life and things that are common with immigrant families, uh, all families, I ended up doing my medical training within the American system and thus my life kind of, um, I guess, ended up within the United States. So I trained at Indiana University and had been there for 10 years until 2013 I moved to Charlotte, and I work for Atrium Health, Levine Children's Hospital. Yeah, I also live in Charlotte, so we're neighbors. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, um, which is good. Yeah, Charlotte's a good place. So as far as mental issues, do you personally have any that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, so I think like most of us that are doing this sort of work and have podcasts supporting it and other sort of uh, forums, there is definitely a stigma still associated with mental health. We are very good as a society to promote our physical well-being and a lot of Western medicine, which is great and needed. But I think that we don't spend enough time exploring our mental and emotional intelligence. And so we have very basic or childlike abilities and coping mechanisms. And I think as we get older, these things, we sort of outgrow those mechanisms. And so in my own life, I volunteered at 9-11 as a med student because I had taken an oath. I was going to be a doctor. I was going to help people, and that's what we should do. So I spent the first five days on the cleanup site, and we didn't have anything in the first 48 hours. But, you know, when you're in your 20s, you never really think about the consequences of your actions or, you know, our developmentally were appropriate to think that we know it all, but we're just starting our adulthood. So fast forward to 2018, August, I got diagnosed unexpectedly with metastatic stage four lung cancer. And the last uh, almost two years, survivor, have not been easy. And I think it really has given me personally a better insight into what it means when we talk about mental and emotional well-being. And it's not a separate part of the body. It's not something that's, you know, heebie-jeebie, whatever. 
it's really important, and I don't think that we address it as much as we should at a much younger age, you know. But hopefully, as we move forward, we can only hope that, you know, future generations would do that. We've seen so much focus on mindfulness and meditation and, you know, sort of all these other things. And I think those are good things, but they're not very easy to be very good at doing it. So if you can do it well, you know, and find that sort of Zen or absolute relaxation, I think there is benefit, but I still think that there's, you know, not a quick fix for everything. And I think what we should be working on is insight into ourselves um, and facing our own demons. Uh, I was just wondering, do you consider your cancer a, a byproduct of 9-11? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. We do. So okay. I have an EGFR mutation. So it just makes me more, more you know, sensitive, I guess, to developing uh, lung cancer. And it's common in Asians. So I fall in the Asian subgroup for my ethnicity. Okay. Um. So yeah, so I'm considered a 9/11 victim. victim, yeah. And yeah, so I, you know, but I would do it the same way. I mean, you know, it was one of the greatest things I've ever had an opportunity to be part of. I never speak about it really because I felt like it was not my story to tell. In my own experience, just that that divide, you know, when I was on site at ground zero, there were tens of thousands of people just, you know, like cheering you on. And, and you, I was in my twenties and the FBI is driving you from one place to the other. And you're like, what is happening? You know? And it was a great feeling. And I have a sister that's a musician. And I always, I remember thinking this is what it must feel like for her um, she had, you know, some, some semi fame. And so I was like, this is what it feels like to be like a superstar, you know? And, and yeah, you're young and you're like, wow, I'm really doing something important and this is great. And then you walk off and then you're just back in the city and people are thinking you're a terrorist. So, you know, it, it was, it was hard, but did I have anybody to talk to about that? No, because in medicine, you just suck it up and move on. Right. So, um, yeah, you probably needed a, a counselor at that time. Yeah, if I did, I think it would have exactly. And that's what, you know, like now with coronavirus, I tell the med students and, you know, our trainees and our future really, like, don't feel like you have to put yourself in positions that you don't know what the risks are. You know, I don't know that I would have done it differently. I think that's being a professional, you know. In the profession of medicine, we definitely are called to that, and we will always put our patients before ourselves. That's not healthy either, because we have a bunch of physician burnout right now, and I'm burnt out. I uh, actually did my own, what we call like a burnout inventory assessment um, that's used a lot in the research. It's called the MassLAC Burnout Inventory and I was like, you know mm-hmm. what? I'll pay. I'll pay twenty bucks and just do my own. And and burnout is a mental illness if you think about it. I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so this uh, Christina Maslach has done a lot of research in the 
in the area. Um, and so I think the WHO in 2019, they identified the mass black burnout inventory as sort of the gold standard in doing some of this work because a lot of organizations are realizing that burnout is real, right? My yeah. podcast, um, The Pulse of Healthcare, is centered around burnout in healthcare because my worry is that I have a bunch of burnt out colleagues on these front lines right now with very hard conditions. And if we don't strengthen their ability and access and need and support of seeking mental health and emotional health, I think bad things will happen. The physician suicide rate is the highest of any profession. There's a lot of a lot of stress. Yeah, a lot of su- a lot. Right, we've seen that throughout this virus. The ones that we have heard about, but and the majority of as far as sex wise, they're more females that kill themselves, which is not which is a very interesting dynamic. So, you know, I am pushing for advocacy. Um, I think every group is important, but I think that you have to look at personal drivers as far as, you know, um, what makes that person. There's no one diagnosis that blankets every person. I, I, I don't think that in medicine, and I don't think that in the mind. And I also think that the mind is part of medicine because, yeah. you know, it's what controls everything else. So I think we as a community, as a society, we really need to normalize it just like we talk about cancer or or diabetes or coronavirus like it has to be normalized and I know that with the pandemic and uh, everybody feeling very isolated and there are a lot of good things that could come from you know having shelter at home and other things like that but there is the worry of all the socioeconomic things that come can I do I have a job no Will unemployment last for forever? No. Is this virus end in sight? No. Like, you know, so for me, I feel like the whole world has gotten a diagnosis of like a terminal illness. You have absolutely right. no control. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. Um, no, 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 no. I was just going to ask you to uh, repeat your podcast if you can and, and what. Who carries it? Is it on Spotify and okay. iTunes? Yeah. So the name of the podcast is The Pulse of Healthcare. It is on Spotify, and Apple, and some of the other platforms, but it's on Anchor FM as well. Mm-hmm. We have an Instagram page and a Facebook page um, as well. Just, you know, again, as safe forums for people to ask questions, suggest content, to reach out, to find peers and others that are understanding. Because I think that we can sit and say that things can be better, or we can feel like our voices will find other voices unite and be strong enough to actually say something and be heard. So how how is your, uh, if I can ask, how is your cancer? You know, I 
have had definitely have had some bumps in 2020. Um, it's a again 2018. My my world changed, and I refuse to accept that because the ego has a way of trying to keep you safe, but really it's just blocking mm-hmm. you from hearing your truth. Um, I went back to life as usual. I think everybody else around me knew that it was coming, and I was just in complete denial. I think medicine sometimes. Again, I have my own concerns for our profession, but we tend to kind of just dissociate from ourselves because it's easier to manage emotion and pain that way. Because what we do is a lot of a lot of people do that. Yeah, right. And so you. Yeah. And so you watch yourself and you're like, okay, I'm a great physician. I never leave my patient's bedside. I'm here late. I, you know, just give them my all. And that's not bad, right? That's great. It's fantastic. But it's not good for the physician, you know? So what is what wow. happens is your cortisol level gets high your sugar level, you know, every everything is out of whack. So everything you're telling everybody else to do, you don't really do for yourself. And that's gone on for, you know, a long time. Whether it's supposed to or not, I think inherently in each physician, you want to, the definition or the, 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 the expectation is that you are as good as how hard you can be hard on yourself. Right. And that means that you're strong enough and that means that you have resilience. Well, that went on yeah. for how many every years I had a very great career. And then after the diagnosis, I, un- I, I had a breakdown. I unraveled. I, everything sort of kind of mm-hmm. came to an head, if you will. And I, right. the fall of 2019, you know, reached out to my leadership, who's been very supportive and I was like, I need to do something. I need to take a break. I need to figure out what is happening. Um, so I I took a leave of absence for two months, and that was um, I worked through December. So I left the country in, at the end of December, and then I ended up at home in Trinidad, and then I went to Europe, and okay. I was um, sort of doing a pilgrimage, if you will. And the point of that was to not be around medicine, which was my entire life and my identity. So not being able to do the things I've done or walk away from the things that I've done felt not good, you know, like I was losing something. And what I realized on that trip was that, hey, you know, this was the card that you got dealt. You know, you could sit here and wonder about what your purpose is, but I think I went through... I guess that existential phase that a lot of people that are put in positions like mine where you lose control, where nothing you've worked for means anything, your stuff, yeah. your money, your, you know, you're yeah. like, well, what the hell, you know, none of that matters. And then yeah. I started looking at my life, like what I had built as far as a life and, and it looks good on the outside, you know, on Facebook, right? Yeah, you know, it looks like what society says is a-okay, you know? I mean, by no means am I in that bracket. But, you know, like I could make a decent living. I was doing good for the community. I, you know, it was upstanding, I I guess. And 
but I was single. I had my pets. I, all I did was work at the hospital. You know, I missed, I missed my nephew's birth. I missed my dad's, you know, like I just missed all these things with my own family and, and that stuff builds up. And what it was replaced with was calling time of death on a six week old or, uh, you know, other kids and yeah. And, and we debrief, but we debrief based on system and skill, right? Like, like, did we do this code appropriately? Everybody had their, you know, roles and all these things, but there's no real emotional debriefing. And as lead of the medical team, you're the one doing the debriefing. So then, you know, in pediatrics, it's never easy. And a lot of the nurses and other health um, team members have kids. So we try to be sensitive about that. But who am I to really be able to be useful in that debriefing? So it's a checkbox, right? Because there should be something in place again that they just witness a traumatic event that they can go to. And that person who's skilled can then decide, hey, do you need more sessions? Do you need some cognitive behavioral therapy? Do you, do you have temporary depression? You know, and those are things that, that I'm not trained at. So I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in our profession. And that's kind of what my podcast talks about. But it took cancer. Mm-hmm to give me yeah to give me an oncopsychologist because it took me a year and something to walk into that office because my mentality was I'm educated I'm a clinician I know if I'm depressed I knew that I had anxiety based on things that happened in my career and I was already on uh Zoloft oh so you were on uh, medication okay I was on medication, yeah, but I adjusted my own medication, right? Because physicians gotcha. are the worst patients sometimes. So I'd be like, I yeah. don't do this, or you know, then I run out of it. Like stupid things happen, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean about the emotional and the mental maturity. Because for me, I feel like I'm stuck in my twenties. You know, I'm acting yeah. with the things that have happened to me in the last two years like a kid. I either throw a tantrum or I hide from it because that's what I did as a kid. And so my therapist has helped me deal with a lot of my, you know, career and and personal and all those things. And it makes sense to the way I reacted. And so for me, I think burnout is maybe manageable, but I don't think it's irreversible. I think we have to prevent it from the beginning. And that's in all of us because in a way people are burnt out from this pandemic, you know, and the world is divided and. uh, And now we have the extra trouble of the racism and things like that. Uh, There hasn't been much good news lately. No, no. In in the world in general. Are you uh, still taking the Zoloft and, Yeah, I mean, I went through, so um, when I started therapy, you know, I was a little late in in that, and it's been a lot of work in the last year, and they were very supportive of my my time away, and I did this retreat, and, uh, you know, they were like, you know, this it's not a fix, because as a physician, you're always looking for that fix, and I think in humans, we're always looking for the fix. Um, mm-hmm. but what I learned on this retreat is that it is a lot of work 
and it's first of all battling your own demons and oh yeah um they basically it was an inward journey like i you know was blindfolded they played um so there's that concept of of uh binaural beats that sort of kind of the different frequencies that access certain certain synapses or more of your brain potential yeah and Mm -hmm. Because for me, I was numb. I just felt like I couldn't feel anything, which, yeah, after decades of just stuffing down emotions and never dealing with it, because you got to be, you know, got to go see the next patient or you like, I think it just kind of adds up. Um, Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I spent the first day, I think I was like thinking I was failing the exercise because it's very hard when you're blindfolded and there's nothing to look at except you. Um, and mm-hmm. I was trying to find control and I think that's me battling my ego. And then the second day I just was a little, I knew what to expect. And I think they said I spent three or four hours just crying. Yeah. Well, crying is, is a very good mechanism for grief. I mean, right. absolutely. So those were years and years and years of things that I never expressed. You know, right. and eventually they have right. to come out. And, and once good. that happened, I, I had the cognitive um, recognition that we need to send this message, not just in healthcare, not, you know, it's in everybody. I mean, we, we, we live in this fast paced world, you know, and here we are in this pandemic. And I bet everybody is anxious, you know. Yeah. Everybody has a lot of anxiety. I, I, my son is a, a youth pastor. Oh, now he's head pastor. And he just came out with a video, and he was talking to his flock. And, you know, because they've been doing everything online. Mm-hmm. And he just came out with a video that scared me even. He w- he seemed very down about everything. And um, he had said he didn't sleep one night. So I do worry about him as well. I have three children and they're all going through this and it's so much tougher for them than it is for me because I never got out that much anyway. So (laughs) staying inside is not uh, as difficult for me, but for these young people, they, they all want to come out. They all Mm -hmm. want it, want it to be over. And, you know, it may last past this year. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a clinician and just knowing what the process is for things to come to market, to know that they're safe for the community. I think we're looking at at least next year, end of next year. Yeah. If, yeah, as, I, you I know, think. yeah. Until we get a vaccine, we're not safe. Right. Uh, uh, we'll be safer in the summer. Because that kind of kills the virus. It's a little bit warmer, although every day there's new information. What I would say is, you know, learn to live with the virus in the sense of you can do your part. And if you go somewhere and it looks chaotic, then maybe it's not worth it, you know? I I consider this whole pandemic like a hurricane. I think we got the first Mm -hmm. part. We're in the eye. We're approaching the eye. And uh, we're going to get hit pretty hard at the end of the hurricane. I I think that's what's going to happen. And hopefully by December, it will calm down. And at 
sometime next year they'll have a vaccine. Well, yeah, but, we hope um, so. I think just the way, again, viruses work as a pediatrician, that's all we take care of. Our busiest time of the year is winter. So I think the fear mm-hmm. is that with the reopening and then this divide with how we, you know, well, what we believe is best, right? Mm-hmm. Is that Master's, right? And so yeah. what we're worried about is asymptomatic carries out there not abiding by the right. guidelines and right. then winter rolls around and now we're going to be in trouble because we don't have anything to protect yeah. it and it will rear its nasty head, you know. Um, yeah, the hard part is yeah. is coming, yeah. I think. Uh, I hate to say it, I wish it wasn't true, but all indications Yeah, show and that. because of that, I will no longer be, I don't know how long it's going to be before I can be bedside with the patient because of my cancer. Right. You're you're in remission? No, so my disease is actually um, progressing. I've been very fortunate that I was able to take um, an oral targeted therapy because it is a mutation, um, EGFR, and I take a drug called Tegresso by AstraZeneca, and it's been amazing. And then uh, when I took my retreat and all this stuff, my scans, like my, it says that it, it progression-free survival for at least 20 months. So my scans right at the 20 months mark was in uh, February when I got back and I had thrown um, a met to my brain and um, my other lesions had kind of come back. So I've been through radiation and now they want to increase the dose of the Tegresso, the two pills mm-hmm. a day, but I'm battling insurance um, because it's not FDA approved to do that. So, yeah, I mean, is is there a lot of side effects you get from that? Um, you know, or? to be quite honest, the side effects are in comparison to other treatment options, negligible. I get some dry skin and uh, okay. some GI issues, but. Other than that, not really. No. No. Yeah. And we had we had talked uh, before we got on the air about uh, pediatric mental yeah. illness. Uh, would you like to talk about sure. that a little bit? So. I mean, what 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 state they're in? Yeah. At this point? I mean, so with North Carolina in general, the um, pediatric. I think in general, the mental health has been um, tough state, city by city, state by state. I think mental health generally in this country is not supported enough. Um, when I moved here from Indianapolis, where we had two pediatric um, inpatient behavioral units, we don't have anything like that here. Um, so Atrium Health uh, children's service line, uh, Levine Children's. We've been trying very hard, um, at least during the time that I've been here, in establishing um, better support um, behaviorally, emotionally for our children, because we believe that it, you know, does make a difference, right? To be able to have access 
um, for those services. So there's no hospitalization. We for hospitalize children under they, certain age. Right, they're hospitalized as inpatients through our system, um, but we should really have something better. So you know, there's nothing provided right. by the state. Okay. So over the last couple of years, we've sort of created a behavioral unit. But again, these kids really do need to be um, cared for in facilities that are mental health correct. oriented. Correct. Right? So we've start. you know, yeah. we've been trying yeah. to expand our ability to do that for our pediatric patients um, in the last couple of years. But it's very hard. <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah. I've heard stories of people as young as seven years old uh, committing suicide. Uh, there was a case in California, I think, two years ago, where this girl was about seven or eight years old, and she killed her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I've definitely... It's a real... Yeah, it is real. Uh, it's a real problem. I mean, it, it, it's a pandemic. All of mental health. It's a global pandemic. Yes, absolutely. Um, And it. Yeah, and and people that we consider normal, they're not. Well, I think that's a big issue, right? Everybody's normal is different. And I think when you try to create definitions where it comes to humanity, there's good and bad in that. And I think think some of these social mm-hmm. norms or, you know, what are we, we're just afraid. We're afraid of what we don't know. The bad news that we see on the TV, despite our global pandemic is because there's usually yeah. some sort of intolerance, some sort of perceived fear, threat, whatever it is. And, and if you think back how many ever hundreds of years, it seems like humanity's always faced with that same question. Can we be tolerable, you know, and accepting, or are we always going to be afraid of something new? And I think that I think we're always going to be afraid of something new, and and that's the issue. That yep, we can't seem to learn it. (laughs) Mental illness recognition is new in in America, at least, because when my father had it, he was undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. But he had bipolar, mm-hmm. and my mother was anxiety-ridden. Yeah. So it's been around forever, and now we're just trying to establish the fact of reality that it's here, and we need to treat it, and we need to stop saying it's because the person is weak. Right. Because it's not. It has nothing I, to I do went with through it. I'm a strong person. Right. And it floored me like you wouldn't believe. And people constantly say, well, you know, I took some cannabis when I had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. You didn't have you didn't have this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This, this is a monster. Yeah. And no amount of cannabis or marijuana or any other drug is going to help other than the pres- prescription drug. I mean... There may be some fantastic therapy that can work. I don't know for sure. But as far as my brain knows, it's the chemicals have to flow. And if they don't flow, then it's going to happen. You're going to have problems. Messages aren't going to go through, through the synapses and you're done. 
you're, you're in bad shape. So if you inherit a lot of these problems, then the chances are you'll get one or two of them or maybe all well, of them like I did. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think there's been a lot of studies recently. You should um, look up a guy, Dr. Stephen Hayes. He's doing a lot of work on sort of the humanitarian or the human um, experience, if you will, in the sense that each one of us are unique. And so, you know, we talk about the synapses and, the, and that we only use at any given time 10 to 15 percent of our brain. And uh, again, medications, other modalities, all sort of work to increase those synapses. And it's within those synapses, memories, you know, that's where they are. They're in your brain somewhere. You just don't have the ability to access them. Or the coping mechanisms that you've developed block them, right? You just go, oh, I don't want to be reminded of that. I don't, I don't want to feel anything anymore. So anything that has to do with emotion, which is where I am, and I, you know, I'm a clinician. I'm a physician. And I have just had insight into the level of anxiety that we always thought was ADHD, you know, that I had. And when I could first see myself, I, re- I was at dinner with my, my mom was here. I had a, a procedure. My parents live out of the country. And I saw myself, like, I actually saw myself. I couldn't, I was like, that girl was so freaking anxious. And then I was like, holy shoot, that girl is you, <laughs> you know, but. It's yeah. easy how you see different personas of yourself. Um, yeah, there's so much exciting work, I think, right now. And I think, yes, people should not go off their medications or, you know, they can do adjunct. Everybody is allowed to do what they think is best for themselves. But I think that, you know, if you are on medication, then I think it's really important that you talk to your clinicians before you make those decisions at the end of the day as a clinician it's our job to give you the quality of life that's best for you so if you feel like you don't want to take your medicines anymore then i think have a conversation with them about it but just don't stop it yeah i i I went off of the medicines in early 91 i had my attack in november of 91 so it creeps out of your system and at some point I had no help and that's, and that's when it attacked. Yeah. Uh, and I would say don't going off the medication is, is most dangerous. You thing can do absolutely. You can ever do. And I say that you as know? a physician yeah. and I say it also as a patient with anxiety, I definitely had a very recent experience that I ran out of my prescription because life gets busy and, Usually places are open when you're working (laughs) and I was like, okay, whatever. And it turned out to be like a two week break. And I started, you know, having my, you know, issues. And then finally one of my colleagues was like, dude, and I remember filling the prescription at one of the pharmacies where I work, you know, close to where I work. So they recognize my name as being a prescriber. And, uh, He's like, how did you run out of this medicine? And he's like, your doctor better give you like a 70 year, like, you know, refill. And I was like, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to run out of it. But again, I'm not taking care of myself. 
because I'm taking care of my patient, right? So right. that's my my other big push is to recognize our healthcare workers aren't going to, I mean, it's a long haul that they're in for. And I don't see a whole lot of support from an, you know, yes, you can't make people go to therapy, but providing an app or telling them to do it, I don't know that we're doing enough. On the, you know. but, but there's some people also that will refuse Correct. refuse to do it. Yeah. My son was like, my middle son was like, oh, no, I'm not taking any medicine. I'm, you know, I, I can beat it. I'm very strong minded. Well, he can, when he re- reached 33, which is a bad age, that's the same age I had the problem. Yeah. He had problems and he woke up at night with, with like night terror. And he came to me at that point. He said, Dad, what, what do I need? I said, well, get yourself some Xanax temporarily for the, for the night terror and get yourself on a, a SSRI medicine. He did both things and the problem, not totally resolved, but it, it, it avoided a, a real disaster where yeah. he could have really been yeah, I think people need to people need not to be so hard on themselves and also to accept the idea that they need, like you said, a medication or some other cognitive behavioral therapy or some other form of support. It doesn't always mean that it has to be forever. There's definitely situational, you know, depression, anxiety, right. and I think there's a lot of that out there. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be sensitive to the kids yep. um, because they are already at developmental important ages and milestones. And it's important to make sure that you help break down this information in a way that they can process it, you know, um, especially the kids that are old enough right. to understand loss, you know, that they've lost their life. They've lost right. their school they've lost their friends they've lost their everything that we have taught them so um and it's nice to see that there have been a lot of people publishing you know children books on some uh content that i think is is very helpful um but you know we are as adults as well going through our own issues you know rent loss of business loss of work lot am i going to even be able to pay for my medication like but um, even if you have the perfect world, if, right. if, if this disease is, is in your body, it will attack you. Correct. So even if you make everything right, you have all the money in the world, uh, you have all the power in the world, it will still come and get you. So, Correct. And unfortunately, yeah. I, I usually keep my podcast around 40 minutes. Oh, yeah, 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 no. The yeah. attention span of... Yeah, Most people, about human beings. But, I know, but, me too. People are like, dude, I think your podcast is too long. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God. I was like, I've seen some out there like yeah. an hour. So I was like, I, I thought know, 30 minutes. They, <laughs> they, they say 40 minutes is, is kind of tops for most people. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to burn them out on, on this. No, I hear, I hear you. It was a pleasure, but, Bob. Yeah, it was um, very I nice. Do anything, and, you let me know, okay? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. That was Dr. Allison Bochan and 
she had a lot of information and I have to say that she also had a lot of courage to go through what she's gone through and not feeling sorry for herself and just moving on and doing the best she can. So I really appreciate her being on the show and taking time out. And uh, I just want to say again that I admire her courageous attitude. And I also hope that she gets better. I hope and pray. Okay. Um, you guys know how to contact me. I'm at overtherainbowbob at gmail.com. Or at my Twitter feed is at rain, over the rain one bow. That's over the rain one bow. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for over the rainbow achieving mental health for real. Okay. Until next time. Take care. <laughs>